BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Chapter 12 of The Three Just Men by Edgar Wallace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Leon Theorizes Making inquiries, Detective Inspector Meadows discovered that, on the previous evening at eight o'clock, two men had called upon Barberton. The first of these was described as tall and rather aristocratic in appearance. He wore dark, horn-rimmed spectacles. The hotel manager thought he might have been an invalid, for he walked with a stick. The second man seemed to have been a servant of some kind for he spoke respectfully to the visitor. "'No, he gave no name, Mr. Meadows,' said the manager. I told him of the terrible thing which had happened to Mr. Barberton, and he was so upset that I didn't like to press the question. Meadows was on his circuitous way to Curzon Street when he heard this, and he arrived in time for breakfast. Manfred's servants regarded it as the one eccentricity of an otherwise normal gentleman that he invariably breakfasted with his butler and chauffeur. This matter had been discussed threadbare in the tiny servants' hall, and it no longer excited comment when Manfred telephoned down to the lower regions and asked for another plate. The triangle were in cheerful mood. Leon Gonzalez was especially bright and amusing, as he invariably was after such a night as he had spent. "'We searched over Jean's house from cellar to attic,' said Meadows, when the plate had been laid. "'And of course you found nothing. The elegant girther?' He wasn't there. That fellow will keep at a distance if he knows that there's a warrant out for him. I suspect some sort of signal. There was a very bright green light burning in one of those ridiculous Gothic turrets. Manfred stifled a yawn. Goethe went back soon after midnight, he said, and was there until Aubergine's return. Are you sure? asked the astonished detective. Leon nodded, his eyes twinkling. After that, one of those infernal river mists blotted out observation, he said, but I should imagine Herr Gerther is not far away. Did you see his companion, Pfeiffer? Meadows nodded. Yes, he was cleaning boots when I arrived. How picturesque, said Gonzales. I think he will have a valet the next time he goes to prison, unless the system has altered since your days, George. George Manfred, who had once occupied the condemned cell in Chelmsford prison, smiled. An interesting man, Gerther mused Gonzales. I have a feeling that he will escape hanging. So you could not find him? I found him last night. But for the lady, who was both an impediment and an interest, we might have put a period to his activities. He caught Meadow's eye. I should have handed him to you, of course. Of course, said the detective dryly. 
a remarkable man, but nervous. You are going to see Mr. Johnson Lee? What made you say that? asked the detective in astonishment, for he had not as yet confided his intention to the three men. He will surprise you, said Leon. Tell me, Mr. Meadows, when you and George so thoroughly and carefully searched Barberton's box, did you find anything that was suggestive of his being a cobbler, let us say, or a bookbinder? I think in his sister's letter there was a reference to the books he had made. I found nothing particular except an awl and a long oblong of wood which was covered with pinpricks. As a matter of fact, when I saw it, my first thought was that, living the kind of life he must have done in the wilderness, it was rather handy to be able to repair his own shoes. The idea of bookbinding is a new one. I should say he never bound a book in his life, in the ordinary sense of the word, remarked Manfred. And as Leon says, you will find Johnson Lee a very surprising man. Do you know him? Manfred nodded gravely. I have just been on the telephone to him, he said. You'll have to be careful of Mr. Lee, Meadows. Our friend the snake may be biting his way, and will, if he hears a breath of suspicion that he was in Barberton's confidence. The detective put down his knife and fork. I wish you fellows would stop being mysterious, he said, half annoyed, half amused. What is behind this business? You talk of the snake as though you could lay your hands upon him. And we could, they said in unison. Who is he? challenged the detective. The hair doctor smiled Gonzales. Aubergine? Leon nodded. I thought you would have discovered that by connecting the original three murders together, and murders they were. First, he took the names off on his fingers, we have a stockbroker. This gentleman was a wealthy speculator who occasionally financed highly questionable deals. Six months before his death he drew from the bank a very large sum of money in notes. By an odd coincidence the bank clerk, going out to luncheon, saw his client and Aubergine driving past in a taxicab, and as they came abreast he saw a large blue envelope go into Aubergine's pocket. The money had been put into a blue envelope when it was drawn. The broker had financed the doctor, and when the scheme failed and the money was lost, he not unnaturally asked for its return. He trusted Aubergine not at all, carried his receipt about in his pocket, and never went anywhere unless he was armed. That fact did not emerge at the inquest, but you know it is true. Meadows nodded. He threatened Aubergine with exposure at a meeting they had in Winchester Street on the day of his death. That night he returns from a theatre or from his club and is found dead on the doorstep. No receipt is found. What follows? A man, a notorious blackmailer, homeless and penniless, was walking along the Bayswater Road, probably looking for easy money, when he saw the broker's car going into Orme Place. He followed on the off chance of begging a few coppers. The chauffeur saw him. The tramp, on the other hand, must have seen something else. He slept the next night at Roughton House, told a friend, who had been in prison with him, that he had a million pounds as good as in his hand. Meadows laughed helplessly. Your system of investigation is evidently more thorough than ours. It is complimentary to yours, said George quietly. Go on, Leon. Now what happened to our friend the burglar? He evidently saw somebody in Orme Place whom he either recognized or trailed to his home. For the next day or two he was in and out of public telephone booths, though no number has been traced. He goes to Hyde Park, 
obviously by appointment, and the snake bites. There was another danger to the Confederacy. The bank clerk, learning of the death of the client, is troubled. I have proof that he called Auberjon on the phone. If you remember, when the broker's affairs were gone into, it was found that he was almost insolvent. A large sum of money had been drawn out of the bank and paid to X. The certainty that he knew who X was worried this decent bank clerk, and he called Auberjon, probably to ask him why he had not made a statement. On the day he telephoned the snake man, that day he died. The detective was listening in silent wonder. It sounds like a page out of a sensational novel, he said, yet it hangs together. It hangs together because it is true. Poicard's deep voice broke into the conversation. This has been Auberjon's method all his life. He is strong for logic, and there is no more logical action in the world than the destruction of those who threaten your safety and life. Meadows pushed away his plate, his breakfast half-eaten. Proof, he said briefly. What proof can you have, my dear fellow, scoffed Leon. The proof is the snake, persisted Meadows. Show me how he could educate a deadly snake to strike as he did when the victim was under close observation, as in the case of Barberton, and I will believe you. The three looked at one another and smiled together. One of these days I will show you, said Leon. They have certainly tamed their snake. He can move so quickly that the human eye cannot follow him. Always he bites on the most vital part and at the most favorable time. He struck at me last night, but missed me. The next time he strikes, he was speaking slowly and looking at the detective through the various slits of his half-closed eyelids. The next time he strikes, not all Scotland Yard on the one side, nor his agreeable company of gunmen on the other, will save him. Puckhart rose suddenly. His keen ears had heard the ring of a bell, and he went noiselessly down the stairs. The whole thing sounds like a romance to me. Meadows was rubbing his chin irritably. I am staring at the covers of a book whilst you are reading the pages. I suppose you devils have the A and Z of the story? Leon nodded. Why don't you tell me? Because I value your life, said Leon simply. Because I wish, we all wish, to keep the snake's attention upon ourselves. Poicart came back at that moment and put his head in the door. Would you like to see Mr. Elijah Washington, he asked and they saw by the gleam in his eyes that Mr. Elijah Washington was well worth meeting. He arrived a second or two later, a tall, broad-shouldered man with a reddish face. He wore a pince-nez, and behind the rimless glasses his eyes were alive and full of bubbling laughter. From head to foot he was dressed in white. The cravat which flowed over the soft silk shirt was a bright yellow, and the belt about his waist as bright as scarlet. He stood beaming upon the company, his white Panama crushed under his arm, both huge hands thrust into his trousers' pockets. "'Glad to know you folks,' he greeted them in a deep boom of a voice. "'I guess Mr. Barberton told you all about me, that poor little guy. Listen, he was a he-man, all right, but kinder mysterious. They told me I'd find the police chief here, Captain Meadows.' "'Mister,' said the inspector, "'I'm that man.' Washington put out his huge paw and caught the detective's hand with a grip that would have been notable in a boa constrictor. "'Glad to know you. My name is Elijah Washington, the Natural History Syndicate, Chicago.' "'Sit down, Mr. Washington,' Plockhart pushed forward a chair. 
I want to tell you gentlemen that this Barberton was murdered. Snake? Listen, I know snakes. Brought up with them. Snakes are my hobby. I know them from egg-eaters to tigers, nochis, centatus, moccasins, copperheads, corals, mamba, fertilance, gosh. Snakes are just common objects like flies. And I tell you boys right here and now that there ain't a snake in this or the next world that can climb up a parapet, bite a man, and get away with it with a copper looking on. He beamed from one to the other. He was almost paternal. I'd like to have shown you folks the worse than Mamba, he said regretfully, but carrying around snakes in your pocket is just hot dog. It's like a millionaire wearing diamond earrings just to show he can afford them. I like that little fellow. I'm mighty sorry he's dead. But if any man tells you that a snake bit him, go right up to him, hit him on the nose, and say, Liar! You will have some coffee? Manfred had rung the bell. Sure I will. Never have got used to this tea-drinking habit. I'm on the wagon, too. Got scared up there in the backlands of Angola. What were you doing there? asked Leon. Snakes, said the other briefly. I represent an organization that supplies specimens to zoos and museums. I was looking for a flying snake. There ain't such a thing, though the natives say there is. I got a new kind of cobra, by Puridae crotaline, and yet not. He scratched his head, bringing his scientific perplexity into the room. Leon's heart went out to him. He had met Barberton by accident. Without shame, he confessed that he had gone to a village in the interior for a real solitary jag, and returning to such degree of civilization as Mosomides represented, he found a group of Portuguese breeds squatting about a fire at which the man's feet were toasting. I don't know what he was, a prospector, I guess. He was one of those what-is-its you meet along the coast. I've met his kind most everywhere, as far south as Port Natosh. In Angola there are scores. They go native at the end. You can tell us nothing about Barberton? Mr. Elijah Washington shook his head. No, sir, I know him same as I might know you. He got me curious when I found out the why of the torturing. He wouldn't tell where it was. Where what was? asked Manfred quickly. And Mr. Washington was surprised. Why, the writing they wanted to get. I thought maybe he told you. He said he was coming right along to spill all that part of it. It was a letter he'd found in a tin box. That was all he'd say. They looked at one another. I know no more about it than that, Mr. Washington added when he saw Gonzales's lips move. It was just a letter. Who it was from, why, what it was about, he never told me. My first idea was that he'd been flirting round about here, but divorce laws are mighty generous and they wouldn't trouble to get evidence that way. A man doesn't want any documents to get rid of his wife. I dare say you folks wonder why I've come along. Mr. Washington raised a steaming cup of coffee, which must have been nearly boiling, and drank it at one gulp. That's fine, he said, the nearest to coffee I've had since I left home. He wiped his lips with a large and vivid silk handkerchief. I've come along, gentlemen, because I've got a pretty good idea that I'd be useful to anybody who's snake-hunting in this little dorp. It's rather a dangerous occupation, isn't it? said Manfred quietly. Washington nodded. To you, but not to me, he said. I am snake-proof. He pulled up his sleeve. The forearm was scarred and pitted with old wounds. Snakes, he said briefly. That's cobra, he pointed proudly. When that snake struck, 
My boys didn't wait for anything. They started dividing my kit. Sort of appointed themselves a board of executors and joint heirs of the family estate. But you were very ill, said Gonzales. Mr. Washington shook his head. No, sir, not more than if a bee bit me, and not so much as if a wasp had gone in first punch. Some people can eat arsenic. Some people can make a meal of enough morphia to decimate a province. I'm snake-proof, been bitten ever since I was five. He bent over towards them, and his jolly face went suddenly serious. I'm the man you want, he said. I think you are, said Manfred slowly. Because this old snake ain't finished biting. There's a graft in it somewhere, and I want to find it. But first I want to vindicate the snake. Anybody who says the snake's naturally vicious doesn't understand. Snakes are timid, quiet, respectful things, and don't want no trouble with nobody. If a snake sees you coming, he naturally lights out for home. When Mama Snake's running around with her family, she's naturally touchy for fear you tread on any of her boys and girls, but she's a lady, and if you give her time, she'll maggie em and get em into the parlor where the foot of white man never trod. Leon was looking at him with a speculative eye. It's queer to think, he said, speaking half to himself, that you may be the only one of us who will be alive this day week. Meadows, not easily shocked, felt a cold shiver run down his spine. End of chapter 12「Thirteen of the Three Just Men by Edgar Wallace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mirabel goes home. The prediction that Leon Gonzales had made was not wholly fulfilled, though he himself had helped to prevent the supreme distress he prophesied. When Mirabel Lester awoke in the morning, her head was thick and dull, and for a long time she lay between sleeping and waking, trying to bring order to the confusion of her thoughts her eyes on the ceiling towards a gnarled oak beam which she had seen before somewhere. And when at last she summoned sufficient energy to raise herself on her elbow, she looked upon the very familiar surroundings of her own pretty little room. Heavy Tree Farm! What a curious dream she had had! A dream filled with fleeting visions of old men with elongated heads, of dance music in a crowded ballroom, of a slightly overdressed man who had been very polite to her at dinner. Where did she dine? She sat up in bed, holding her throbbing head. Again she looked round the room and slowly, out of her dreams, emerged a few tangible facts. She was still in a state of bewilderment when the door opened and Aunt Alma came in, and the unprepossessing face of her relative was accentuated by her look of anxiety. Hello, Alma, said Mirabel dully. I've had such a queer dream. Alma pressed her lips tightly together as she placed a tray on a table by the side of the bed. I think it was about that advertisement I saw. And then with a gasp, how did I come here? They brought you, said Alma. The nurse is downstairs having her breakfast. She's a nice woman and keeps press cuttings. The nurse? asked Mirabelle in bewilderment. You arrived here at three o'clock in the morning in a motor car. You had a nurse with you. Alma enumerated the circumstances in chronological order. And two men. First one of the men got out and knocked at the door. I was worried to death. In fact, I'd been worried all the afternoon, ever since I had your wire telling me not to come up to London. 
"'But I didn't send any such wire,' replied the girl. "'After I came down, the man, he was really a gentleman and very pleasantly spoken, "'told me that you'd been taken ill and a nurse had brought you home. "'They then carried you, the two men and the nurse, upstairs and laid you on the bed, "'and nurse and I undressed you. "'I simply couldn't get you to wake up. "'All you did was to talk about the orangeade. "'I remember. It was so bitter.' and Lord Evington let me drink some of his. And then I... I don't know what happened after that, she said, with a little grimace. Mr. Gonzales ordered the car, got the nurse from a nursing home, explained Alma. Gonzales! Not my Gonzales! The, the four just men Gonzales? she asked in amazement. I'm sure it was Gonzales. They made no secret about it. You can see the gentleman who brought you. He's about the house somewhere. I saw him in Heavy Tree Lane not five minutes ago, strolling up and down and smoking. A pipe, added Alma. The girl got out of bed. Her knees were curiously weak under her, but she managed to stagger to the window, and pushing open the casement still farther, looked out across the patchwork quilt of color. The summer flowers were in bloom, the delicate scents came up on the warm morning air, and she stood for a moment, drinking in great draughts of the exquisite perfume, and then, with a sigh, turned back to the waiting Elma. I don't know how it happened and what it's about, but my word, Elma, I'm glad to be back. That dreadful man. We lunched at the Ritz-Carlton. I never want to see another restaurant or a ballroom or Chester Square or anything but old heavy tree. She took the cup of tea from Elma's hand, drank greedily, and put it down with a little gasp. That was wonderful. Yes, the tea was too, but I'm thinking about Gonzales. If it should be he! I don't see why you should get excited over a man who's committed I don't know how many murders. Don't be silly, Alma scoffed the girl. The just men have never murdered, any more than a judge and jury murder. The room was still inclined to go round, and it was with the greatest difficulty that she could condense the two Almas who stood before her into one tangible individual. There's a gentleman downstairs. He's been waiting since twelve. And when she asked, she was to learn, to her dismay, that it was half-past one. I'll be down in a quarter of an hour, she said recklessly. Who is it? I'd never heard of him before, but he's a gentleman, was the unsatisfactory reply. They didn't want to let him come in. Who didn't? The gentleman who brought you here in the night. Mirabel stared at her. You mean they're guarding the house? That's how it strikes me, said Alma bitterly. Why they should interfere with us, I don't know. Anyway, they let him in. Mr. Johnson Lee. The girl frowned. I don't know the name, she said. Alma walked to the window. There's his car, she said, and pointed. It was just visible, standing at the side of the road beyond the box hedge, a long-bodied rolls white with dust. The chauffeur was talking to a strange man, and from the fact that he was smoking a pipe, Mirabel guessed that this was one of her self-appointed custodians. She had her bath, and with the assistance of the nurse, dressed and came shakily down the stairs. Alma was waiting in the brick-floored hall. "'He wants to see you alone,' she said in a stage whisper. "'I don't know whether I ought to allow it, but there's evidently something wrong. These men prowling about the house have got thoroughly on my nerves.' Mirabel laughed softly as she opened the door and walked in. 
At the sound of the door closing, the man who was sitting stiffly on a deep settee in a window recess got up. He was tall and bent, and his dark face was lined. His eyes she could not see. They were hidden behind dark green glasses, which were turned in her direction as she came across the room to greet him. "'Miss Mirabel Lester?' he asked in the quiet, modulated voice of an educated man. He took her hand in his. "'Won't you sit down?' she said, for he remained standing after she had seated herself. "'Thank you.' He sat down gingerly, holding between his knees the handle of the umbrella he had brought into the drawing-room. "'I'm afraid my visit may be inopportune, Miss Lester,' he said. "'Have you by any chance heard about Mr. Barberton?' Her brows wrinkled in thought. "'Barberton? I seem to have heard the name. "'He was killed yesterday on the Thames Embankment.' Then she recollected. "'The man who was bitten by the snake?' she asked in horror. The visitor nodded. "'It was a great shock to me, because I have been a friend of his for many years, and had arranged to call at his hotel on the night of his death. And then abruptly he turned the conversation in another and surprising direction. "'Your father was a scientist, Miss Lester?' She nodded. Yes, he was an astronomer, an authority upon meteors. Exactly. I thought that was the gentleman. I have only recently had his book read to me. He was in Africa for some years? Yes, she said quietly, he died there. He was studying meteors for three years in Angola. You probably know that a very large number of shooting stars fall in that country. My father's theory was that it was due to the ironstone mountains which attract them so he set up a little observatory in the interior. Her lips trembled for a second. He was killed in a native rising, she said. Do you know the part of Angola where he had his observatory? She shook her head. I'm not sure. I have never been in Africa, but perhaps Aunt Alma may know. She went out to find Alma waiting in the passage in conversation with the pipe smoker. The man withdrew hastily at the sight of her. Alma, do you remember what part of Angola father had his observatory? she asked. Alma did not know offhand, but one of her invaluable scrapbooks contained all the information that the girl wanted, and she carried the book to Mr. Lee. Here are the particulars, she said, and laid the book open before them. Would you read it for me? he requested gently, and she read to him the three short paragraphs which noted that Professor Lester had taken up his residence in Bishaka. That is the place, interrupted the visitor. Bishaka. You are sure that Mr. Barberton did not communicate with you? With me? she said in amazement. No, why should he? He did not answer, but sat for a long time, turning the matter over in his mind. You are perfectly certain that nobody sent you a document, probably in the Portuguese language, concerning, he hesitated, Bishaka? She shook her head, and then, as though he had not seen the gesture, he asked the question again. "'I'm certain,' she said. "'We have very little correspondence at the farm, and it isn't possible that I could overlook anything so remarkable.' Again he turned the problem over in his mind. "'Have you any documents in Portuguese or in English, any letters from your father about Angola?' "'None,' she said. The only reference my father ever made to Bashaka was that he was getting a lot of information which he thought would be valuable, and that he was a little troubled because his cameras, which he had fixed in various parts of the country to cover every sector of the skies, were being disturbed by wandering prospectors. 
He said that, did he? asked Mr. Lee eagerly. Come now, that explains a great deal. In spite of herself, she laughed. It doesn't explain much to me, Mr. Lee, she said frankly. And then, in a more serious tone, did Barberton come from Angola? Yes, Barberton came from that country, he said in a lower voice. I should like to tell you, he hesitated, but I am rather afraid. Afraid to tell me? Why? He shook his head. So many dreadful things have happened recently to poor Barberton and others that knowledge seems the most dangerous thing. I wish I could believe that it would not be dangerous to you, he added kindly, and then I could speak what is in my mind and relieve myself of a great deal of anxiety. He rose slowly. I think the best thing I can do is to consult my lawyer. I was foolish to keep it from him so long. He is the only man I can trust to search my documents. She could only look at him in astonishment. But surely you can search your own documents, she said good-humouredly. No, I'm afraid I can't, because, he spoke with the simplicity of a child, I am blind. Blind? gasped Mirabelle, and the man laughed gently. I am pretty capable for a blind man, am I not? I can walk across the room and avoid all the furniture. The only thing I cannot do is read, at least read the ordinary print. I can read Braille. Poor Barberton taught me. He was a schoolmaster, he explained, at a blind school near Breitlingsea. Not a particularly well-educated man, but a marvelously quick writer of Braille. We have corresponded for years through that medium. He could write a Braille letter almost as quickly as you can with pen and ink. Her heart was full of pity for the man. He was so cheery, so confident, and withal so proud of his own accomplishments. That pity turned to admiration. He had the ineffable air of obstinacy which is the possession of so many men similarly stricken, and she began to realize that self-pity, that greatest of all afflictions which attends blindness, had been eliminated from his philosophy. I should like to tell you more, he said, as he held out his hand. Probably I will dictate a long letter to you tomorrow, or else my lawyer will do so, putting all the facts before you. For the moment, however, I must be sure of my ground. I have no desire to raise in your heart either fear or hope. Do you know a Mr. Manfred? I don't know him personally, she said quickly. George Manfred? He nodded. Have you met him? she asked eagerly. And Mr. Poicart, the Frenchman? No, not Mr. Poicart. Manfred was on the telephone to me very early this morning. He seemed to know all about my relationships with my poor friend. He knew also of my blindness. A remarkable man, very gentle and courteous. It was he who gave me your address. Perhaps he mused it would be advisable if I first consulted him. I'm sure it would, she said enthusiastically. They are wonderful. You have heard of them, of course, Mr. Lee, the four just men. He smiled. That sounds as though you admire them, he said. Yes, I have heard of them. They are the men who, many years ago, set out to regularize the inconsistencies of the English law, to punish where no punishment is provided by the code. Strange I never associated them. He meditated upon the matter in silence for a long while, and then, I wonder, he said, but did not tell her what he was wondering. She walked down the garden path with him into the roadway and stood chatting about the country and the flowers that he had never seen. 
and the weather and such trivialities as people talk about when their minds are occupied with more serious thoughts which they cannot share, until the big limousine pulled up and he stepped into its cool interior. He had the independence which comes to the educated blind and gently refused the offer of her guidance, an offer she did not attempt to repeat, sensing the satisfaction he must have had in making his way without help. She waved her hand to the car as it moved off, and so naturally did his hand go up and salute that for a moment she thought he had seen her. So he passed out of her sight, and might well have passed out of her life, for Mr. Oberjohn had decreed that the remaining hours of blind Johnson Lee were to be few. But it happened that the three men reached the same decision in regard to Mr. Oberjohn, only there was some indecision as to the manner of his passing. Leon Gonzalez had original views. End of chapter 13《The Peddler》The man with the pipe was standing within a half a dozen paces of her. She was going back through the gate when she remembered Aunt Alma's views on the guardianship. "'Are you waiting here all day?' she asked. "'Till this evening, miss. We're to be relieved by some men from Gloucester.' We came from town and were going back with the nurse, if you can do without her. Who placed you here? she asked. Mr. Gonzales. He thought it would be wise to have somebody around. But why? The big man grinned. I've known Mr. Gonzales many years, he said. I'm a police pensioner, and I can remember the time when I'd have given a lot of money to lay my hands on him, but I've never asked him why, miss. There is generally a good reason for everything he does. Mirabel went back into the farmhouse very thoughtful. Happily, Alma was not inquisitive. She was left alone in the drawing-room to reconstruct her exciting yesterday. Mirabel harbored very few illusions. She had read much, guessed much, and in the days of her childhood had been in the habit of linking cause to effect. The advertisement was designed especially for her. That was her first conclusion. It was designed to bring her into the charge of Aubergine. For now she recognized this significant circumstance. Never once, since she had entered the offices of Aubergeon and Smith's, until the episode of the Orange Aid, had she been free to come and go as she wished. He had taken her to lunch. He had brought her back. Joe Newton had been her companion in the drive from the house and from the house to the hall. And from then on she did not doubt that Aubergeon's surveillance had continued until... Dimly she remembered the man in the cloak who had stood in the rocking doorway. Was that Gonzales? Somehow she thought it must have been. Gonzales, watchful alert. Why? She had been in danger, was still in danger. Though why anybody should have picked unimportant her was the greatest of all mysteries. In some inexplicable way the death of Barberton had been associated with that advertisement and the attention she had received from Dr. Aubergeon and his creatures. Who was Lord Evington? She remembered his German accent and his gracious lady, the curious click of his heels and his stiff bow. That was a clumsy subterfuge which she ought to have seen through from the first. He was another of her watchers, and the drugged orangeade was his work. She shuddered. Suppose Leon Gonzales, or whoever it was, had not arrived so providentially, where would she be at this moment? Walking to the window, she looked out. 
and the sight of the two men just inside the gate gave her a sense of infinite relief and calm, and the knowledge that she, for some reason, was under the care and protection of this strange organization about which she had read thrilled her. She walked into the vaulted kitchen to find the kitchen table covered with fat volumes and Aunt Alma explaining to the interested nurse her system of filing. Two subjects interested that hard-featured lady, crime and family records. She had two books filled with snippings from country newspapers relating to the family of a distant cousin who had been raised to a peerage during the war. She had another devoted to the social triumphs of a distant woman, Goddard, who had finally made a sensational appearance as petitioner in the most celebrated divorce suit of the age. But crime, generally speaking, was Aunt Alma's chief preoccupation. It was from these voluminous cuttings that Mirabel had gained her complete knowledge of the four just men and their operations. There were books packed with the story of the Ramon murder, arranged with loving care and order of time, for chronology was almost a vice in Alma Goddard. Only one public sensation was missing from her collection, and she was explaining the reason to the nurse as Mirabel came into the kitchen. No, my dear, she was saying, there is nothing about the snake. I won't have anything to do with that. It gives me the creeps. In fact, I haven't read anything that has the slightest reference to it. I've got every line, said the nurse enthusiastically. My brother is a reporter on the megaphone, and he says this is the best story they've had for years. Mirabel interrupted this somewhat gruesome conversation to make inquiries about luncheon. Her head was steady now, and she had developed an appetite. The front door stood open, and as she turned to go into the dining room to get her writing materials, she heard an altercation at the gate. A third man had appeared, a grimy-looking peddler who carried a tray before him, packed with all manner of cheap buttons and laces. He was a middle-aged man with a ragged beard, and despite the warmth of the day, was wearing a long overcoat that almost reached to his heels. "'You may or you may not be,' the man with the pipe was saying. "'But you're not going in here.' "'I've served this house for years,' snarled the peddler. "'What do you mean by interfering with me? You're not a policeman.' "'Whether I'm a policeman or a dustman or a postman,' said the patient guard, "'you don't pass through this gate. Do you understand that?' At this moment the peddler caught sight of the girl at the door and raised his battered hat with a grin. He was unknown to the girl. She did not remember having seen him at the house before. Nor did Alma, who came out at that moment. "'He's a stranger here, but we're always getting new people up from Gloucester,' she said. "'What does he want to sell?' She stalked out into the garden, and at the sight of her the grin left the peddler's face. "'I've got some things I'd like to sell to the young lady, ma'am,' he said. "'I'm not so old and I'm a lady,' replied Alma sharply. "'And how long is it since you started picking and choosing your customers?' The man grumbled something under his breath, and without waiting even to display his wares, shuffled off along the dusty road, and they watched him until he was out of sight. Heavy Tree Farm was rather grandly named for so small a property. The little estate followed the road to Heavy Tree Lane, which formed the southern boundary of the property.' The lane itself ran at an angle to behind the house, where the third boundary was formed by a hedge dividing the farmland from the more pretentious estate of a local magnate. It was down the lane the peddler turned. "'Excuse me, ma'am,' said the companion of the man with the pipe. He opened the gate, walked in, and, making a circuit of the house, reached the orchard behind. Here a few outhouses were scattered, and, clearing these, 
he came to the meadow where Mirabel's one cow ruminated in the lazy manner of her kind. Half hidden by a thick bold apple tree, the watcher waited, and presently, as he expected, he saw a head appear through the boundary hedge. After an observation, the peddler sprang into the meadow and stood, taking stock of his ground. He had left his train, his bag, and, running with surprising swiftness for a man of his age, he gained a little wooden barn, and pulling open the door disappeared into its interior. By this time the guard had been joined by his companion, and they had a short consultation, the man with the pipe going back to his post before the house, whilst the other walked slowly across the meadow until he came to the closed door of the barn. Wise in his generation, he first made a circuit of the building, and discovered there were no exits through the blackened gates. Then, pulling both doors open wide, "'Come out, Bo,' he said. The barn was empty, except for a heap of hay that lay in one corner and some old and wheelless farm wagons propped up on three trestles awaiting the wheelwright's attention. A ladder led to a loft and the guard climbed slowly. His head was on a level with the dark opening when, "'Put up your hands!' He was looking into the attic with muzzle of an automatic pistol. "'Come down, Bo.' "'Put up your hands,' hissed the voice in the darkness, "'or you're a dead man.' The watcher obeyed, cursing his folly that he had come alone. "'Now climb up.' With some difficulty the guard brought himself up to the floor level. "'Step this way and step lively,' said the peddler. "'Hold your hands out.' He felt the touch of cold steel on his wrist, heard a click. "'Now the other hand.' The moment he was manacled, the peddler began a rapid search. "'Carry a gun, do you?' he sneered, as he drew a pistol from the man's hip pocket. "'Now sit down.' In a few seconds the discomforted guard was bound and gagged. The peddler, crawling to the entrance of the loft, looked out between a crevice in the boards. He was watching not the house, but the hedge through which he had climbed. Two other men had appeared there, and he grunted his satisfaction. Descending into the barn, he pulled away the ladder and let it fall on the floor, before he came out into the open and made a signal. The second guard had made his way back by the shortest cut to the front of the house, passing through the garden and in through the kitchen door. He stopped to shoot the bolts, and the girl, coming into the kitchen, saw him. "'Is anything wrong?' she asked anxiously. "'I don't know, miss. He was looking at the kitchen windows. They were heavily barred. My mate has just seen that peddler go into the barn.' She followed him to the front door. He had turned to go, but changing his mind came back, and she saw him put his hand into his hip pocket and was staggered to see him produce a long-barreled browning. "'Can you use a pistol, miss?' She nodded, too surprised to speak, and watched him as he jerked back the jacket and put up the safety catch. "'I want to be on the safe side, and I'd feel happier if you were armed.' There was a gun hanging on the wall, and he took it down. "'Have you any shells for this?' he asked. She pulled open the drawer of the hall stand and took out a cardboard carton. "'They may be useful,' he said. "'But surely, Mr.' "'Digby,' he supplied his name. "'Surely you're exaggerating. I don't mean that you're doing it with any intention of frightening me, but there isn't any danger to us.' "'I don't know. I've got a queer feeling. Had it all morning. How far is the nearest house from here?' "'Not half a mile away,' she said. "'You're on the phone?' She nodded. I'm scared, maybe. I'll just go out into the road and have a look round. I wish that fellow would come back, he added fretfully. 
He walked slowly up the garden path and stood for a moment, leaning over the gate. As he did so, he heard the rattle and asthmatic wheezing of an ancient car, and saw a tradesman's trolley come round a corner of Heavy Tree Lane. Its pace grew slower as it got nearer to the house, and opposite the gate it stopped altogether. The driver, getting down with a curse, lifted up the battered tin bonnet, and groping under the seat, brought out a long spanner. Then, swift as thought, he half-turned and struck at Digby's head. The girl heard the sickening impact, saw the watcher drop limply to the path, and in another second she had slammed the door and thrust home the bolts. She was calm. The hand that took the revolver from the hall table did not tremble. Alma, she called, and Alma came running downstairs. What on earth, she began, and then saw the pistol in Mirabel's hands. They are attacking the house, said the girl quickly. Don't know who they are, but they've just struck down one of the men who was protecting us. Take the gun, Alma. Alma's face was contorted. I might have expressed fear or anger or both. Mirabelle afterwards learnt that the dominant emotion was one of satisfaction to find herself in so warlike an environment. Running into the drawing-room, the girl pushed open the window, which commanded a view of the road. The gate was unfastened, and two men, who had evidently been concealed inside the trolley, were lifting the unconscious man, and she watched, with a calm she could not understand in herself, as they threw him into the interior and fastened the tailboard. She counted four in all, including the driver, who was climbing back to his seat. One of the newcomers, evidently the leader, was pointing down the road towards the lane, and she guessed that he was giving directions as to where the car should wait, for it began to go backwards almost immediately and with surprising smoothness, remembering the exhibition it had given of decrepitude a few minutes before. The man who had given instructions came striding down the path towards the door. Stop! He looked round with a start into the leveled muzzle of a browning, and his surprise would, in any other circumstances, have been comical. "'It's all right, miss,' he began. "'Put yourself outside that gate,' said Mirabel coolly. "'I wanted to see you. Very important.' "'Bang!' Mirabel fired a shot, aimed above his head towards the old poplar. The man ducked and ran. Clear of the gate, he dropped to the cover of a hedge, where his men already were, and she heard the murmur of their voices distinctly, for the day was still and the far-off chugging of the trolley's engine sounded close at hand. Presently she saw a head peep around the hedge. "'Can I have five minutes' talk with you?' asked the leader loudly. He was a thick-set bronzed man, with a patch of lint plastered to his face, and she noted unconsciously that he wore gold earrings. "'There's no trouble coming to you,' he said, opening the gate as he spoke. "'You oughtn't to have fired, anyway.' Nobody's going to hurt you. He had advanced a yard into the garden as he spoke. Bang! Bang! In her haste she had pressed butt and trigger just a fraction too long, and startled by the knowledge that another shot was coming, her hand jerked round, and the second shot missed his head by the fraction of an inch. He disappeared in a flash, and a second later she saw their hats moving swiftly above the box. They were running towards the waiting car. Stay here, Alma! Alma Goddard nodded grimly, and the girl flew up the stairs to her room. From this elevation she commanded a better view. She saw them climb into the van, and in another second the limp body of the guard was thrown out into the hedge. Then, after a brief space of time, the machine began moving and, gathering speed, disappeared in a cloud of dust on the high comb road. 
Mirabelle came down the stairs at a run, pulled back the bolts and flew out and along the road towards the still figure of the detective. He was lying by the side of the ditch, his head a mass of blood, and she saw that he was still breathing. She tried to lift him, but it was too great a task. She ran back to the house. The telephone was in the hall, an old-fashioned instrument with a handle that had to be turned, and she had not made two revolutions before she realized that the wire had been cut. Alma was still in the parlor, the gun gripped tight in her hand, a look of fiendish resolution on her face. You must help me get Digby into the house, she said. Where is he? Mirabel pointed, and the two women returning to the man, half lifted, half dragged him back to the hall. Laying him down on the brick floor, the girl went in search of clean linen. The kitchen, which was also the drying place for Alma's more intimate laundry, supplied all that she needed. Whilst Alma watched, unmoved the destruction of her wardrobe, the girl bathed the wound and the frightened nurse, who had disappeared at the first shot, applied a rough dressing. The wound was an ugly one, and the man showed no signs of recovering consciousness. We shall have to send Mary into Gloucester for an ambulance, said Mirabelle. We can't send nurse. She doesn't know the way. Mary, said Alma calmly, is at this moment having hysterics in the larder. I'll harness the dog cart and go myself. But where is the other man? Mirabelle shook her head. I don't like to think what has happened to him, she said. Now, Alma, do you think we can get him into the drawing room? Together they lifted the heavy figure and staggered with it into the pretty little room, laying him at last upon the settee under the window. He can rest there till we get the ambulance, began Mirabelle, and the chuckle behind her made her turn with a gasp. It was the peddler, and in his hand he held the pistol which he had discarded. I only want you, he nodded to the girl. The other two women can come out here. He jerked his head to the passage. Under the stairs was a big cupboard, and he pulled the door open invitingly. Get in here. If you make a noise, you'll be sorry for yourselves. Alma's eyes wandered longingly to the gun she had left in the corner, but before she could make a move he had placed himself between her and the weapon. Get inside, said the peddler. Mirabelle was not much surprised when Aunt Elma meekly obeyed. He shut the door on the two women and fastened the hatch. Now, young lady, put on your hat and be lively. He followed her up the stairs into her room and watched her while she found a hat and a cloak. She knew only too well that it was a waste of time even to temporize with him. He, for his part, was so exultant at his success that he grew almost loquacious. I suppose you saw the boys driving away and you didn't remember that I was somewhere around? Was that you doing the shooting? She did not answer. It couldn't have been Lou, or you'd have been dead, he said. He was examining the muzzle of the pistol. It was you, all right, he chuckled. Ain't you the game one? Sister, you ought to be. He stopped dead, staring through the window. He was paralyzed with amazement at the sight of a bareheaded Aunt Alma flying along the Gloucester Road. With an oath, he turned to the girl. How did she get out? Have you got anybody here? Now speak up. The cupboard under the stairs leads to the wine cellar, said Mirabel coolly, and there are two ways out of the wine cellar. I think Aunt Alma found one of them. With an oath, he took a step towards her, gripped her by the arm, and jerked her towards the door. Lively, he said and dragged her down the stairs through the hall into the kitchen. He shot back the bolts, but the lock of the kitchen door had been turned. This way, 
He swore cold-bloodedly, and her arm still in his powerful grip, he hurried along the passage and pulled open the door. It was an unpropitious moment. A man was walking down the path, a half-smile on his face, as though he was thinking over a remembered jest. At the sight of him, the peddler dropped the girl's arm, and his hand went like lightning to his pocket. "'When will you die?' said Leon Gonzalez softly. "'Make a choice, and make it quick.' And the gun in his hand seemed to quiver with homicidal eagerness. End of chapter 14「Fifteen of the Three Just Men by Edgar Wallace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Two accidents. The peddler, his face twitching, put up his shaking hands. Leon walked to him, took the browning from his moist grip, and dropped it into his pocket. "'Your friends are waiting, of course,' he said pleasantly. The peddler did not answer. "'Cuccini, too?' I thought I had incapacitated him for a long time. They've gone, growled the peddler. Gonzales looked round in perplexity. I don't want to take you into the house. At the same time, I don't want to leave you here, he said. I almost wish you'd drawn that gun of yours, he added regretfully. It would have solved so many immediate problems. This particular problem was solved by the return of the disheveled Alma and the restoration to her of her gun. I would so much rather you shot him than I, said Leon earnestly. The police are very suspicious of my shootings, and they never wholly believe that they are done in self-defense. With a rope he tied the man, and tied him uncomfortably, wrists to ankles. That done, he made a few inquiries and went swiftly out to the barn, returning in a few minutes with the unhappy guard. It can't be helped, said Leon, cutting short the man's apologies. The question is, where are the rest of the brethren? Something zipped past him. It had the intensified hum of an angry wasp, and a second later he heard a muffled plop. In a second he was lying flat on the ground, his browning covering the hedge that hid Heavy Tree Lane. Run to the house, he called urgently. They won't bother about you. And the guard, nothing loth, sprinted for the cover of walls. Presently Leon located the enemy and at a little distance off he saw the flat top of the covered trolley. A man walked slowly and invitingly across the gap in the hedge, but Gonzales held his fire, and presently the maneuver was repeated. Obviously they were trying to concentrate his mind upon the gap whilst they were moving elsewhere. His eyes swept the meadow boundary. Running parallel, he guessed, was a brook or ditch which would make excellent cover. Again the man passed leisurely across the gap, Leon steadied his elbow and glanced along the sight. As he did so, the man reappeared. Crack! Gonzales aimed a foot behind him. The man saw the flash and jumped back, as he had expected. In another second he was writhing on the ground with a bullet through his leg. Leon showed his teeth in a smile and switched his body round to face a new point of attack. It came from the spot that he had expected, a little rise of ground that commanded his position. The first bullet struck the turf to his right with an angry buzz, sent a divot flying heavenward, and ricocheted with a smack against a tree. Before the raised head could drop to cover, Gonzales fired, fired another shot to left and right, then rising, raced for the shelter of the tree, and reached it in time to see three heads bobbing back to the road. He waited, covering the gap, 
but the people who drew the wounded man out of sight did not show themselves, and a minute later he saw the trolley moving swiftly down the by-road and knew the danger was past. The firing had attracted attention. He had not been back in the house a few minutes before a mounted policeman, his horse in a lather, came galloping up to the gate and dismounted. A neighboring farm had heard the shots and telephoned to constabulary headquarters. For half an hour the mounted policemen took notes, and by this time half the farmers in the neighborhood, their guns under their arms, had assembled in Mirabelle's parlor. She had not seen as much of the redoubtable Leon as she could have wished, and when they had a few moments to themselves she seized the opportunity to tell him of the call which Lee had made that morning. Apparently he knew all about it, for he expressed no surprise, and was only embarrassed when she showed a personal interest in himself and his friends. It was not a very usual experience for him, and he was rather annoyed with himself at this unexpected glimpse of enthusiasm and hero-worship, sane as it was, and based as he realized upon her keen sense of justice. "'I'm not so sure that we've been very admirable, really,' he said. "'But the difficulty is to produce at the moment a judgment which would be given from a distance of years. "'We have sacrificed everything which to most men would make life worth living,' and our desires to see the scales held fairly. "'You're not married, Mr. Gonzales?' He stared into the frank eyes. "'Married? Why, no,' he said, and she laughed. "'You talk as though that were a possibility that had never occurred to you.' "'It hasn't,' he admitted. "'By the very nature of our work we are debarred from that experience. And is it an offensive thing to say I have never felt my singleness to be a deprivation?' It is very rude, she said severely. Leon was laughing to himself all the way back to town, as that a great joke that improved upon repetition. I think we can safely leave her for a week, he reported on his return to Curzon Street. No, nothing happened. I was held up in a police trap near Newbury for exceeding the speed limit. They said I was doing fifty, but I should imagine it was nearer eighty. Meadows will get me out of that. Otherwise I must send the inevitable letter to the magistrate and pay the inevitable fine. Have you done anything about Johnson Lee? Manfred nodded. Meadows and the enthusiastic Mr. Washington have gone round to see him. I have asked Washington to go because, he hesitated, the snake is a real danger, so far as he's concerned. Elijah Washington promises to be a very real help. He is afraid of nothing and has undertaken to stay with Lee and to apply such remedies for snake-bites as he knows. He was putting on his gloves as he spoke, and Leon Gonzalez looked at him with a critical admiration. "'Are you being presented at court, or are you taking tea with a duchess?' "'Neither. I'm calling upon friend Aubergine.' "'The devil you are,' said Leon, his eyebrows rising. "'I have taken the precaution of sending him a note.' asking him to keep his snakes locked up, said Manfred, and as I have pointedly forwarded the carbon copy of the letter to impress the fact that another exists and may be brought in evidence against him, I think I shall leave Aubergine and Smith's main office without hurt. If you are not too tired, Leon, I would rather prefer the Buick to the Spans. Give me a quarter of an hour, said Leon, and went up to his room to make himself tidy. It was fifteen minutes exactly when the Buick stopped at the door and Manfred got into the saloon. There was no partition between driver and passenger, and conversation was possible. It would have been as well if you'd had Brother Newton there, he suggested. 
Brother Newton will be on the spot. I took the precaution of sending him a similar note, said Manford. I shouldn't imagine they'll bring out their gunmen. I know two and possibly three they won't bring out. Gonzales grinned at the traffic policeman who waved him into Oxford Street. That browning of mine throws high, Manfred. I've always had a suspicion it did. Pistols are queer things, but this may wear into my hand. He talked arms and ammunition until the square block of Aubergeon and Smith's came into sight. Good hunting, he said, as he got out, opened the saloon door and touched his hat to Manfred as he alighted. He got back into his seat, swung the little car round in a circle, and sat on the opposite side of the road, his eyes alternately on the entrance and on the mirror which gave him a view of the traffic approaching him from the rear. Manfred was not kept in the waiting room for more than two minutes. At the end of that time, a solemn youth in spectacles with a little bow led him across the incurious office into the presence of the illustrious doctor. The old man was at his desk. Behind him, his debonair self, Monty Newton, a large yellow flower in his buttonhole, a smile on his face. Aubergeon got up like a man standing to attention. "'Mr. Manfred, this is a great honor," he said, and held out his hand stiffly. An additional chair had been placed for the visitor, a rich-looking tapestry chair, to which the doctor waved a hand which Manfred did not take. "'Good morning, Manfred,' Newton removed his cigar and nodded genially. "'Were you at the dance last night?' "'I was there, but I didn't come in,' said Manfred, seating himself. You did not turn up till late, they tell me. It was of all occurrences the most unfortunate, said Dr. Aubergeon, and Newton laughed. I've lost his laboratory secretary, and he hasn't forgiven me, he said almost jovially. The girl he took on yesterday, rather a stunner in the way of looks. She didn't wish to go back to the country where she came from, so my sister offered to put her up for the night in Chester Square. I'm blessed if she didn't lose herself at the dance, and we haven't seen her since. It was a terrible thing, said Aubergeon sadly. I regard her as in my charge. For her safety, I am responsible. You, I trust, Mr. Newton. I don't think I should have another uneasy moment if I were you, doctor, said Manfred easily. The young lady is back at Heavy Tree Farm. I thought that would surprise you. And she is still there. That will surprise you more, if you have not already heard by telephone that your old guard failed dismally to uh, bring her back to work. I presume that was their object. My old guard, Mr. Manfred? Aubergeon shook his head in bewilderment. This is beyond my comprehension. Is your sister well? asked Manfred blandly. Newton shrugged his shoulders. She is naturally upset, and who wouldn't be? Joan is a very tender-hearted girl. She has been that way for years, said Manfred offensively. May I smoke? Will you have one of my cigarettes? Manfred's grave eyes fixed the doctor in a stare that held the older man against his will. "'I have had just one too many of your cigarettes,' he said. His words came out like a cold wind. "'I do not want any more, Herr Doctor, or there will be vacancies in your family circle. Who knows that, long before you compound your wonderful elixir, you may be called to normal immortality?' The yellow face of Aubergeon had turned to a dull red. You seem to know so much about me, Mr. Manfred, as myself, he said in a husky whisper. Manfred nodded. More, for whilst you are racing against time to avoid the end of a life which does not seem especially worthy of preservation, 
and whilst you know not what day or hour that end may come, I can tell you to the minute. The finger of his gloved hand pointed the threat. All trace of a smile had vanished from Auntie Newton's face. His eyes did not leave the callers. Perhaps you shall tell me. Aubergine found a difficulty in speaking. Rage possessed him, and only his iron will choked down the flames from view. The day that injury comes to Mirabel Lester, that day you go out, you and those who are with you. Look here, Manfred, there's a law in this country, began Monty Newton hotly. I am the law, the words rang like a knell of fate. In this matter I am judge, jury, hangman. Old or young, I will not spare, he said evenly. Are you immortal, too? sneered Monty. Only for a second did Manfred's eyes leave the old man's face. The law is immortal, he said. If you dream that by some cleverly concerted coup you can sweep me from your path before I grow dangerous, be sure that your sweep is clean. You haven't asked me to come here to listen to this stuff, have you? asked Newton. And though his words were bold, his manner aggressive, there were shadows on his face which were not there when Manfred had come into the room. Shadows under his eyes and in his cheeks where plumpness had been. I've come here to tell you to let up on Miss Lester. You're after something you cannot get, and nobody is in a position to give you. I don't know what it is, and will make you a present of that piece of information. But it's big, bigger than any prize you've ever gone after in your wicked lives. And to get that, you're prepared to sacrifice innocent lives with the recklessness of spendthrifts who think there is no bottom to their purse. The end is near. He rose slowly and stood by the table, towering over the stiff-backed doctor. I cannot say what action the police will take over this providential snake-bite, Aubergeon, but I'll make you this offer. I and my friends will stand out of the game and leave Meadows to get you in his own way. You think that means you'll go scot-free? But it doesn't. These police are like bulldogs. Once they've got a grip on you, they never let go. What is the price you ask for this interesting service? Newton was puffing steadily at his cigar, his hands clasped behind him, his feet apart, a picture of comfort and well-being. Leave Miss Lester alone. Find a new way of getting the money you need so badly. Newton laughed. My dear fellow, that's a stupid thing to say. Neither Aubergine nor I are exactly poor. You're bankrupt, both of you, said Manfred quietly. You are in the position of gamblers when the cars have run against you for a long time. You have no reserve, and your expenses are enormous. Find another way, Newton, and tell your sister, he paused by the door, looking down into the white lining of his silk hat, I'd like to see her at Curzon Street tomorrow morning at ten o'clock. Is that an order? asked Newton sarcastically. Manfred nodded. Then let me tell you, roared the man, white with passion that I take no orders for her or for me. Got swollen heads since you've had your pardon, haven't you? You look out for me, Manfred. I'm not exactly harmless. He felt the pressure of the doctor's foot upon his and curbed his temper. All right, he growled, but don't expect to see Joan. He added a coarse jest, and Manfred raised his eyes slowly and met his. You will be hanged by the state or murdered by Aubergine. I am not sure which, he said simply, and he spoke with such perfect confidence that the heart of Monty Newton turned to water. Manfred stood in the sidewalk and signaled, and the little car came swiftly and noiselessly across. Leon's eyes were on the entrance. 
A tall man standing in the shadow of the hall was watching. He was leaning against the wall in a negligent attitude, and for a second Leon was startled. Get in quickly! Leon almost shouted the words back, and Manfred jumped into the machine as the chauffeur sent the car forward with a jerk that strained every gear. What on? began Manfred, but the rest of his words were lost in the terrific crash which followed. The leather hood of the machine was ripped down at the back. A splinter of glass struck Leon's cap and sliced the half-moon neatly. He jammed on the brakes, threw open the door of the saloon, and leapt out. Behind the car was a mass of wreckage. A great iron casting lay split into three pieces amidst the tangle of broken packing case. Leon looked up. Immediately above the entrance to Aubergine and Smith's was a crane, which had swung out with a heavy load just before Manfred came out. The steel wire hung loosely from the derrick. He heard excited voices speaking from the open doorway three floors above, and two men in large glasses were looking down and gabbling in a language he did not understand. A very pretty accident. It might have filled half a column in the evening newspapers if we had not moved. And the gentleman in the hall, what was he doing? Leon walked back through the entrance. The man had disappeared, but near where he had been standing was a small bell-push which, it was obvious, had recently been fixed, for the wires ran loosely on the surface of the wall and were new. He came back in time to see a policeman crossing the road. "'I wish to find out how this accident occurred, Constable,' he said. "'My master was nearly killed.' The policeman looked at the ton of debris lying half on the sidewalk, half on the road, then up at the slack and hawser. "'The cable has run off the drum, I should think.' "'I should think so,' said Leon gravely. He did not wait for the policeman to finish his investigations, but went home at a steady pace, and made no reference to the accident, until he had put away his car and had returned to Curzon Street. The man in the hall was put there to signal when you were under the load. Certain things must not happen, he said. I am going out to make a few inquiries. Gonzales knew one of Aubergine's staff, a clean young Swede, with that knowledge of English which is normal in Scandinavian countries, and at nine o'clock that night he drifted into a Swedish restaurant in Dean Street and found the young man at the end of his meal. It was an acquaintance, one of many, that Leon had assiduously cultivated. The young man, who knew him as Mr. Hines, Leon spoke German remarkably well, was glad to have a companion with whom he could discuss the inexplicable accident of the afternoon. The cable was not fixed to the drum, he said. It might have been terrible. There was a gentleman in a motor-car outside, and he had only moved away a few inches when the case fell. There is bad luck in that house. I am glad that I am leaving at the end of the week. Leon had some important questions to put, but he did not hurry, having the gift of patience to a marked degree. It was nearly ten when they parted, and Gonzales went back to his garage, where he spent a quarter of an hour. At midnight, Manfred had just finished a long conversation with the Scotland Yard man, who was still at Breitlingsea, when Leon came in, looking very pleased with himself. Poicard had gone to bed, and Manfred had switched out one circuit of lights when his friend arrived. "'Thank you, my dear George,' said Gonzales briskly. "'It was very good of you, and I did not like troubling you, but—' "'It was a small thing,' said Manfred with a smile, and involved merely the changing of my shoes. "'But why?' I am not curious, but why did you wish me to telephone the night watchman at Aubergine's to be waiting at the door at eleven o'clock for a message from the doctor? 
because, said Leon cheerfully, rubbing his hands, the night watchman is an honest man. He has a wife and six children, and I was particularly wishful not to hurt anybody. The building doesn't matter. It stands, or stood, isolated from all others. The only worry in my mind was the night watchman. He was at the door. I saw him. Manfred asked no further questions. Early the next morning he took up the paper and turned to the middle page, read the account of the big fire in City Road, which had completely gutted the premises of Messrs. Oberzon and Smith's, and what is more, he expected to read it before he had seen the paper. "'Accidents are accidents,' said Leon the philosopher that morning at breakfast. "'And that talk I had with the clerk last night told me a lot. Oberzon has allowed his fire insurance to lapse.'" End of chapter 15《16 of the Three Just Men by Edgar Wallace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Wrath Hall. In one of the forbidden rooms that was filled with the apparatus which Dr. Aubergeon had accumulated for his pleasure and benefit was a small electrical furnace which was the center of many of his most interesting experiments. There were in certain known drugs constituents which it was his desire to eliminate. Dr. Aubergeon believed absolutely in many things that the modern chemist would dismiss as fantastical. He believed in the philosopher's stone, in the transmutation of base metals to rare. He had made diamonds, of no great commercial value, it is true, but his supreme faith was that somewhere in the materia medica was an infallible elixir which would prolong life far beyond the normal span. It was to all other known properties as radium is to pitchblende, it was something that only the metaphysician could discover, only the patient chemist could materialize. Every hour he could spare he devoted himself to his obsession, and he was in the midst of one of his experiments when the telephone bell called him back to his study. He listened, every muscle of his face moving, to the tale of disaster that Monty Newton wailed. "'It is burning still? Have you no fire-extinguishing machinery in London?' "'Is the place insured or not?' asked Monty for the second time. Dr. Aubergeon considered. It is not, he said, but this matter is of such small importance compared to the great thing which is coming that I shall not give it a thought. It was incendiary, said Newton angrily. The fire brigade people are certain of it. That cursed crowd are getting back on us for what happened this afternoon. I know nothing that happened this afternoon, said Dr. Aubergeon coldly. You know of nothing either. It was an accident which we all deplored. As to this man, we shall see. He hung up the telephone receiver very carefully, went along the passage, down a steep flight of dark stairs, and into a basement kitchen. Before he opened the door he heard the sound of furious voices, and he stood for a moment surveying the scene with every feeling of satisfaction. Except for two men, the room was empty. The servants used the actual kitchen at the front of the house, and this place was little better than a scullery. On one side of the deal table stood Gerther, white as death, his round eyes red with rage. On the other the short, stout Russian Pole, with his heavy, pasty face and baggy eyes, his little mustache and beard bristling with anger. The cards scattered on the table and the floor told the hair doctor that this was a repetition of the quarrel which was so frequent between them. Schweinhund, hissed Gerther. 
I saw you palm the king as you dealt, thief and robber of the blind. You German dog, you... They were both speaking in German. Then the doctor saw the hand of Gerther steal down and back. Gerther, he called, and the man spun round. To my parlor, march. Without a word, the man strode past him, and the doctor was left with the panting Russian. Herr Doctor, this Gerther is beyond endurance. His voice trembled with rage. I would sooner live with a pig than this man, who is never normal unless he is drugged. Silence, shouted Aubergeon, and pointed to the chair. You shall wait till I come, he said. When he came back to his room, he found Gerther standing stiffly to attention. Now, Gerther, he said. He was almost benevolent as he patted the man on the shoulder. This matter of Gonzales must end. Can I have my Gerther hiding like a worm in the ground? No, that cannot be. Tonight I will send you to this man, and you are so clever that you cannot fail. He whipped you, Gerther, tied you up and cruelly beat you. Always remember that, my brave fellow. He beat you till you bled. Now you shall see the man again. You will go in a dress for every occasion, he said. The city clerk manner. You will watch him in your so clever way, and you shall strike. It is permitted. Ja, Herr Doctor. He turned on his heels and disappeared through the door. The doctor waited till he heard him going up the stairs, and then he rang for Pfeiffer. The man came in sullenly. He lacked all the precision of the military Gerther, yet as Aubergeon knew, of the two he was the more alert, the more cunning. Pfeiffer, it has come to me that you are in some danger. The police wish to take you back to Warsaw, where certain unpleasant things happen, as you well know. And I am told, he lowered his voice, that a friend of ours would be glad to see you go, eh? The man did not raise his sulky eyes from the floor, did not answer, or by any gesture or movement of body suggest that he had heard what the older man had said. Gerther goes tomorrow, perhaps on our good work, perhaps to speak secretly to his friends and the police, who knows? He has work to do. Let him do it, Pfeiffer. All my men will be there, at a place called Breitlingsee. You also shall go. Gerther would rob a blind man? Good. You shall rob one also. As for Gerther, I do not wish him back. I am tired of him. He is a madman. All men are mad who sniff that white snuff up their foolish noses, eh, Pfeiffer? Still the awkward-looking man made no reply. Let him do his work. You shall not interfere until it is done. Pfeiffer was looking at him now, a cold sneer on his face. If he comes back, I do not, he said. This man is frightening me. Twice the police have been here. Three times. You remember the woman. This man is a danger, Herr Doctor. I told you he was the day you brought him here. He can dress in the gentleman club manner, said the doctor gently. Pshaw, said the other scornfully. Is he not an actor who was postured and painted his face and thrown about his legs for so many marks a week? If he does not come back, I shall be relieved, murmured the doctor. Though it would be a mistake to leave him so that these cunning men could pry into our affairs. Pfeiffer said nothing. He understood his instructions. There was nothing to be said. When does he go? Early tomorrow, before daylight. You will see him, of course. He said something in a low tone that only Pfeiffer heard. The shadow who stood in stockinged feet listening at the door only heard two words. Gerther grinned in the darkness. His bright eyes grew luminous. 
He heard his companion move towards the door and sped up the stairs without a sound. Wrath Hall was a rambling white building of two stories, set in the midst of a little park, so thickly wooded that the house was invisible from the road, and since the main entrance to the estate was a very commonplace gate, without lodge or visible drive beyond, Gonzales would have missed the place had he not recognized the man who was sitting on the moss-grown and broken wall who jumped down as Leon stopped his car. "'Mr. Meadows is at the house, sir. He said he expected you.' "'And where on earth is the house?' asked Leon Gonzales as he went into reverse. For answer, the detective opened the gate wide and Leon sent his car winding between the trees, for close at hand he recognized where a gravel drive had once been, and moreover saw the tracks of cars in the soft earth. He arrived just as Mr. Johnson Lee was taking his two guests in to dinner, and Meadows was obviously glad to see him. He excused himself and took Leon aside into the hall, where they could not be overheard. "'I have had your message,' he said. "'The only thing that has happened out of the ordinary is that the servants have an invitation to a big concert at Breitlingsea. You expected that?' Leon nodded. "'Yes, I hope Lee will let them go. I prefer that they should be out of the way. A crude scheme, but Aubergine does these things. Has anything else happened?' "'Nothing. There have been one or two queer people around.' Has he showed you the letters he had from Barberton? To his surprise, the inspector answered in the affirmative. Yes, but they are worse than Greek to me, a series of tiny protuberances on thick brown paper. He keeps them in his safe. He read some of the letters to me. They were not very illuminating. But the letter of letters? asked Leon anxiously. That which Lee answered. By the way, you know that Mr. Lee wrote all his letters between perforated lines? I've seen the paper, nodded the detective. No, I asked him about that, but apparently he is not anxious to talk until he has seen his lawyer, who is coming down tonight. He should have been here, in fact, in time for dinner. They passed into the dining room together. The blind man was waiting patiently at the head of the table, and with an apology Leon took the place that had been reserved for him. He sat with his back to the wall, facing one of the three long windows that looked out upon the park. It was a warm night and the blinds were up, as also was the middle window that faced him. He made a motion to Mr. Washington, who sat opposite him, to draw a little aside, and the American realized that he wished an uninterrupted view of the park. "'Would you like the window closed?' asked Mr. Lee, leaning forward and addressing the table in general. "'I know it is open,' he said with a little laugh, "'because I opened it. I am a lover of fresh air.' They murmured their agreement, and the meal went on without any extraordinary incident. Mr. Washington was one of those adaptable people who dovetail into any environment in which they find themselves. He was as much at home at Rath Hall as though he had been born and bred in the neighborhood. Moreover, he had a special reason for jubilation. He had found a rare adder when walking in the woods that morning, and spent ten minutes explaining in what respect it differed from every other English adder. "'Is it dead?' asked Meadows nervously. "'Kill it?' said the indignant Mr. Washington. "'Why should I kill it? I saw a whole lot of doves out on the lawn this morning. Should I kill them?' "'No, sir. I've got none of those mean feelings toward snakes. I guess the Lord sent snakes into this world for some other purpose than to be chased and killed every time they're seen. I sent him up to London today by train to a friend of mine at the Zoological Gardens.' He'll keep him until I'm ready to take him back home. Meadows drew a long sigh. 
as long as he's not in your pocket, he said. Do you mind? Leon's voice was urgent as he signaled Washington to move yet further to the left, and when the big man moved his chair, Leon nodded his thanks. His eyes were on the window in the darkening lawn. Not once did he remove his gaze. It's an extraordinary thing about Poole, my lawyer, Mr. Lee was saying. He promised faithfully he'd be at Rath by seven o'clock. What time is it? Meadows looked at his watch. Half past eight, he said. He saw the cloud that came over the face of the blind owner of Rath Hall. It is extraordinary. I wonder if you would mind. His foot touched a bell beneath the table and his butler came in. Will you telephone to Mr. Poole's house and ask if he has left? The butler returned in a short time. Yes, sir. Mr. Poole left the house by car at half-past six. Johnson Lee sat back in his chair. Half-past six? He should have been here by now. How far away does he live? About fifteen miles. I thought he might have come down from London rather late. That is extraordinary. He may have had tire trouble, said Leon, not shifting his fixed stare. He could have telephoned. Did anybody know he was coming? Anybody outside your own household? asked Gonzales. The blind man hesitated. Yes, I mentioned the fact to the post office this morning. I went in to get my letters and found that one I had written to Mr. Poole had been returned through a stupid mistake on my part. I told the postmaster that he was coming this evening and that there was no need to forward it. You were in the public part of the post office? I believe I was. You said nothing else, Mr. Lee, nothing that would give any idea of the object of this visit? Again his host hesitated. I don't know. I'm almost afraid that I did, he confessed. I remember telling the postmaster that I was going to talk to Mr. Poole about poor Barberton. Mr. Barberton was very well known in this neighborhood. That is extremely unfortunate, said Leon. He was thinking of two things at the same time, the whereabouts of the missing lawyer and the wonderful cover that the wall between the window and the floor gave to any man who might creep along out of sight until he got back suddenly to send the snake on its errand of death. How many men have you got in the grounds, by the way, Meadows? One, and he's not in the grounds, but outside on the road. I pull him in at night, or rather in the evening, to patrol the grounds, and he is armed. He said this with a certain importance. An armed English policeman is a tremendous phenomenon, that few have seen. Which means that he has a revolver that he hasn't fired except at target practice, said Leon. Excuse me, I thought I heard a car. He got up noiselessly from the table, went round the back of Mr. Lee, and darting to the window looked out. A flower bed ran close to the wall, and beyond that was a broad gravel drive. Between gravel and flowers was a wide strip of turf. The drive continued some fifty feet to the right before it turned under an arch of rambler roses. To the left it extended for less than a dozen feet, and from this point a path parallel to the side of the house ran into the drive. "'Do you hear it?' asked Lee. "'No, sir, I was mistaken.' Leon dipped his hand into his side pocket, took out a handful of something that looked like tiny candies wrapped in colored paper. Only Meadows saw him scatter them left and right, and he was too discreet to ask why. Leon saw the inquiring lift of his eyebrows as he came back to his seat, but was willfully dense. Thereafter he ate his dinner with only an occasional glance towards the window. "'I'm not relying entirely upon my own lawyer's advice,' said Mr. Lee. "'I have telegraphed to Lisbon to ask Dr. Pinto Caello to come to England 
and he may be of greater service even than Poole, though where the butler came in at this moment. Mrs. Poole has just telephoned, sir. Her husband has had a bad accident. His car ran into a tree trunk which was lying across the road near Lawley. It was on the other side of the bend, and he did not see it until too late. Is he very badly hurt? No, sir, but he is in the cottage hospital. Mrs. Poole says he is fit to travel home. The blind man sat open-mouthed. What a terrible thing to have happened, he began. The very lucky thing for Mr. Poole, said Leon cheerfully, I feared worse than that. From somewhere outside the window came a snap, the sound that a Christmas cracker makes when it is exploded. Leon got up from the table, walked swiftly to the side of the window, and jumped out. As he struck the earth, he trod on one of the little bonbons he had scattered, and it cracked viciously under his foot. There was nobody in sight. He ran swiftly along the grass plot, slowing his pace as he came to the end of the wall, and then jerked round, gun extended stiffly. Still nobody. Before him was a close-growing box hedge, in which had been cut an opening. He heard the crack of a signal behind him, guessed that it was Meadows, and presently the detective joined him. Leon put his fingers to his lips, leapt the path to the grass on the other side, and dodged behind a tree until he could see straight through the opening in the box hedge. Beyond was a rose garden, a mass of pink and red and golden blooms. Leon put his hand in his pocket and took out a black cylinder, fitting it, without taking his eyes from the hedge opening, to the muzzle of his pistol. Meadows heard the dull thud of the explosion before he saw the pistol go up. There was a scatter of leaves and twigs and the sound of hurrying feet. Leon dashed through the opening in time to see a man plunge into a plantation. Plop! The bullet struck a tree not a foot from the fugitive. That's that, said Leon, and took off his silencer. I hope none of the servants heard it, and most of all that Lee, whose hearing is unfortunately most acute, mistook the shot for something else. He went back to the window, stopping to pick up such of his crackers as had not exploded. They are useful things to put on the floor of your room when you're expecting to have your throat cut in the middle of the night, he said pleasantly. They cost exactly two dollars a hundred, and they've saved my life more often than I can count. Have you ever waited in the dark to have your throat cut? he asked. It happened to me three times, and I will admit that it is not an experience that I am anxious to repeat. Once in Bohemia, in the city of Prague, once in New Orleans, and once in Ortana. What happened to the assassins? asked Meadows with a shiver. That is a question for the theologian, if you will forgive the well-worn jest, said Leon. I think they are in hell, but then I'm prejudiced. Mr. Lee had left the dining table and was standing at the front door, leaning on his stick, and with him an interested Mr. Washington. What was the trouble? asked the old man in a worried voice. It is a great handicap not being able to see things, but I thought I heard a shot fired. Two, said Leon promptly. I hoped you hadn't heard them. I don't know who the man was, Mr. Lee, but he certainly had no right in the grounds, and I scared him off. You must have used the silencer. I did not hear the shots fully. Did you catch a view of the man's face? No, I saw his back, he said. Leon thought it was unnecessary to add that a man's back was as familiar to him as his face, for when he studied his enemies, his study was a very thorough and complete one. Moreover, Gerther ran with the peculiar swing of his shoulder. He turned suddenly to the master of Rath Hall. 
"'May I speak with you privately for a few minutes, Mr. Lee?' he asked. He had taken a sudden resolution. "'Certainly,' said the other courteously, and tapped his way into the hall and into his private study. For ten minutes Leon was closeted with him. When he came out, Meadows had gone down to his man at the gate, and Washington was standing disconsolately alone. Leon took him by the arm and led him on to the lawn. "'There's going to be real trouble here tonight,' he said, and told him the arrangement he had made with Mr. Johnson Lee. "'I've tried to persuade him to let me see the letter which is in his safe, but he is like a rock on that matter, and I'd hate to burgle the safe of a friend. Listen.' Elijah Washington listened and whistled. They stopped the lawyer coming, Gonzales went on, and now they're mortally scared if, in his absence, the old man tells us what he intended keeping for his lawyer. Meadows is going to London, isn't he? Leon nodded slowly. Yes, he is going to London, by car. Did you know all the servants were going out tonight? Mr. Washington stared at him. The women, you mean? The women and the men, said Leon calmly. There is an excellent concert at Breitlingsea tonight, and though they will be late for the first half of the performance, they will thoroughly enjoy the latter portion of the program. The invitation is not mine, but it is one I thoroughly approve. But does Meadows want to go away when the fun is starting? Apparently Inspector Meadows was not averse from leaving at this critical moment. He was, in fact, quite happy to go. Mr. Washington's views on police intelligence underwent a change for the worse. But surely he had better stay, said the American. If you're expecting an attack, they are certain to marshal the whole of their forces? Absolutely certain, said the calm Gonzales. Here is the car. The rolls came out from the back of the house at that moment and drew up before the door. I don't like leaving you, said Meadows, as he swung himself up by the driver's side and put his bag on the seat. Tell the driver to avoid lawly like the plague, said Leon. There's a tree down, unless the local authorities have removed it, which is very unlikely. He waited until the taillights of the machine had disappeared into the gloom, then he went back to the hall. Excuse me, sir, said the butler, struggling into his great coat as he spoke. Well, you'll be all right. There was nobody left in the house to look after Mr. Lee. I could stay. It was Mr. Lee's suggestion you should all go, said Gonzales briefly. Just go outside and tell me when the lights of the Charabanc come into view. I want to speak to Mr. Lee before you go. He went into the library and shut the door behind him. The waiting butler heard the murmur of his voice and had some qualms of conscience. The tickets had come from a local agency. He had never dreamt that, with guests in the house, his employer would allow the staff to go in its entirety. It was not a Charabanc, but a big clothes bus that came lumbering up the apology for a drive and swept round to the back of the house, to the annoyance of the servants, who were gathered in the hall. "'Don't bother. I will tell him,' said Leon. He seemed to have taken full charge of the house, an unpardonable offence in the eyes of well-regulated servants. He disappeared through a long passage leading into the mysterious domestic regions, and returned to announce that the driver had rectified his error and was coming to the front entrance, an unnecessary explanation since the big vehicle drew up as he was telling the company. "'There goes the most uneasy bunch of festive souls that has ever been my misfortune to see,' he said, as the bus, its brakes squealing, went down the declivity towards the unimposing gate. "'And yet they'll have the time of their lives. I've arranged supper for them at the Beach Hotel, 
and although they are not aware of it, I am removing them to a place where they'd give a lot of money to be, if they hadn't gone. That leaves you and me alone, said Mr. Washington glumly, but brightened up almost at once. I can't say that I mind a rough house, with or without gunplay, he said. He looked round the dark hall a little apprehensively. What about fastening the doors behind, he asked. They're all right, said Leon. It isn't from the back that danger will come. Come out and enjoy the night air. It is a little too soon for the real trouble. But here for once he was mistaken. Elijah Washington followed him into the park, took two paces, and suddenly Leon saw him stagger. In a second he was by the man's side, bent and peering, his glasses discarded on the grass. Get me inside, said Washington's voice. He was leaning heavily upon his companion. With his arm round his waist, taking half his weight, Leon pushed the man into the hall but did not close the door. Instead, as the American sat down with a thud upon a hall seat, Leon fell to the ground and peered along the artificial skyline he had created. There was no movement, no sign of any attacker. Then and only then did he shut the door and drop the bar, and pushing the study door wide, carried the man into the room and switched on the lights. I guess something got me then, muttered Washington. His right cheek was red and swollen, and Leon saw the telltale bite, saw something else. He put his hand to the cheek and examined his fingertips. Get me some whiskey, will you? About a gallon of it. He was obviously in great pain and sat rocking himself to and fro. Gosh, this is awful, he groaned. Never had any snake that bit like this. You're alive, my friend, and I didn't believe you when you said you were snake-proof. Leon poured out a tumbler of neat whiskey and held it to the American's lips. Down with prohibition, murmured Washington, and did not take the glass from his lips until it was empty. You can give me another dose of that. I shan't get pickled, he said. He put his hand up to his face and touched the tiny wound gingerly. It is wet, he said in surprise. What did it feel like? Like nothing so much as a snake bite, confessed the expert. Already his face was puffed beneath the eyes, and the skin was discolored black and blue. Leon crossed to the fireplace and pushed the bell, and Washington watched him in amazement. Say, what's the good of ringing? The servants have gone. There was a patter of feet in the hall. The door was flung open and George Manfred came in, and behind him the startled visitor saw Meadows and a dozen men. "'For the Lord's sake,' he said sleepily. "'They came in the charabanc, lying on the floor,' explained Leon, "'and the only excuse for bringing a charabanc here was to send the servants to that concert.' "'You got Lee away?' asked Manfred. Leon nodded. "'He was in the car that took friend Meadows, who transferred to the charabanc somewhere out of sight of the house.' Washington had taken a small cardboard box from his pocket and was rubbing a red powder gingerly upon the two white edge marks, groaning the while. This is certainly a snake that's got the cobra skin to death and a rattlesnake's bite ain't worse than a dog nip, he said. Mamba nothing. I know the mamba. He is pretty fatal, but not so bad as this. Manfred looked across to Leon. Gerther? he asked simply, and Gonzalez nodded. It was intended for me, obviously, but as I've said before, Gerther is nervous, and it didn't help him any to be shot up. Do you fellows mind not talking so loud? He glanced at the heavy curtains that covered the windows. Behind these, the shutters had been fastened, and Dr. Aubergeon was an ingenious man. Leon took a swift survey of the visitor's feet. They wore felt slippers, 
I don't think I can improve upon the tactics of the admirable Miss Lester, he said, and went up to Mr. Lee's bedroom, which was in the centre of the house and had a small balcony, the floor of which was formed by the top of the porch. The long French windows were open, and Leon crawled out into the darkness and took observation through the pillars of the balustrade. They were in the open now, making no attempt to conceal their presence. He counted seven, until he saw the cigarette of another near the end of the drive. What were they waiting for, he wondered. None of them moved. They were not even closing on the house. And this inactivity puzzled him. They were awaiting a signal. What was it to be? Whence would it come? He saw a man come stealthily across the lawn. One or two. His eyes were playing tricks. If there were two, one was Gerther. There was no mistaking him. For a second he passed out of view behind a pillar of the balcony. Leon moved his head. Gerther had fallen. He saw him stumble to his knees and tumble flat upon the ground. What did that mean? He was still wondering when he heard a soft scraping and a deep-drawn breath and tried to locate the noise. Suddenly, within a few inches of his face, a hand came up out of the darkness and gripped the lower edge of the balcony. Swiftly, noiselessly, Gonzales wriggled back to the room, drew erect in the cover of the curtains and waited. His hand touched something. It was a long silken cord by which the curtains were drawn. Leon grinned in the darkness and made a scientific loop. The intruder drew himself up onto the parapet, stepped quietly across, then tiptoed to the open window. He was not even suspicious, for the French windows had been open all the evening. Without a sound, he stepped into the room and was momentarily silhouetted against the starlight reflected in the window. Hatless, thought Leon. That made things easier. As the man took another stealthy step, the noose dropped over his neck, jerked tightly and strangled the cry in his throat. In an instant he was lying flat on the ground with a knee in his back. He struggled to rise, but Leon's fist came down with the precision of a piston rod, and he went suddenly quiet. Gonzales loosened the slipknot, and flinging the man over his shoulder, carried him out of the room and down the stairs. He could only guess that this would be the only intruder, but left nothing to chance and after he had handed his prisoner to the men who were waiting in the hall, he ran back to the room to find, as he had expected, that no other adventurer had followed the lead. They were still standing at irregular intervals where he had seen them last. The signal was to come from the house. What was it to be, he wondered. He left with one of his men on guard in the room and went back to the study to find that the startled burglar was an old friend. Luke Lucini was looking from one of his captors to the other, a picture of dumbfounded chagrin. But the most extraordinary discovery that Leon made on his return to the study was that the American snake charmer was his old, cheerful self, and except for his unsightly appearance, seemed to be none the worse for an ordeal which would have promptly ended the lives of ninety-nine men out of a hundred. Snake-proof, that's me. Is this the guy that did it? He pointed to Cuccini. Where is Gerther? asked Manfred. Cuccini grinned up into his face. You'd better find out, boss, he said. He'll fix you, as soon as I shout. Cuccini, Leon's voice was gentle. The point of the long-bladed knife that he held to the man's neck was indubitably sharp. Cuccini shrank back. You will not shout. If you do, I shall cut your throat and spoil all these beautiful carpets. That is a genuine silken bokara, George. I haven't seen one in ten years. 
He nodded to the soft-hued rug on which George Manford was standing. What is the signal, Cuccini? Turning his attention again to the prisoner. And what happens when you give the signal? Listen, said Cuccini. That throat-cutting stuff don't mean anything to me. There's no third degree in this country, and don't forget it. You have never seen my ninety-ninth degree, Leon smiled like a delighted boy. Put something in his mouth, will you? One of the men tied a woolen scarf round Cuccini's head. Lay him on the sofa. He was already bound hand and foot and helpless. Have you any wax matches? Yes, here are some. Leon emptied a cut glass container into the palm of his hand and looked blandly round at the curious company. Now, gentlemen, if you will leave me alone for exactly five minutes, I will give Mr. Cuccini an excellent imitation of the persuasive methods of Gian Visconti, an excellent countryman of his, and the inventor of the system I am about to apply. Cuccini was shaking his head furiously. A mumble of unintelligible sounds came from behind the scarf. Our friend is not unintelligent. Any of you who say that Signor Cuccini is unintelligent will incur my severest displeasure, said Leon. They sat the man up and he talked brokenly, hesitatingly. Splendid, said Leon, when he had finished. Take him into the kitchen and give him a drink. You'll find a tap above the kitchen sink. I've often wondered, Leon, said George, when they were alone together, whether you would ever carry out these horrific threats of yours of torture and malignant savagery. Half the torture of torture is anticipation, said Leon easily, lighting a cigarette with one of the matches he had taken from the table and carefully guiding the rest back into the glass bowl. Any man versed in the art of suggestive description can dispense with thumbscrews and branding irons, little maidens and all the ghastly apparatus of criminal justice ever employed by our ancestors. I too wonder, he mused, blowing a ring of smoke to the ceiling, whether I could carry my threats into execution. I must try one day. He nodded pleasantly as though he were promising himself a great treat. Manfred looked at his watch. What do you intend doing? Giving the signal? Gonzales nodded. And then? Letting them come in. We may take refuge in the kitchen. I think it would be wiser. George Manfred nodded. You're going to allow them to open the safe? Exactly, said Leon. I particularly wish that safe to be opened. And since Mr. Lee demurs, I think this is the best method. I had that in my mind all the time. Have you seen the safe, George? I have. Nobody but an expert could smash it. I have no tools. I did not provide against such a contingency, and I have scruples. Our friends have the tools, and no scruples. And the snake? Is there any danger? Leon snapped his fingers. The snake has struck for the night, and will strike no more. As for Gerther, he owes you something. Leon sent another ring up and did not speak until it broke on the ceiling. Gerther is dead, he said simply. He has been lying on the lawn in front of the house for the past ten minutes. End of chapter 16「Seventeen of the Three Just Men by Edgar Wallace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Written in Braille. Leon briefly related the scene he had witnessed from the balcony. It was undoubtedly Gerther, he said. I could not mistake him. He passed out of view for a second behind one of the pillars, and when I looked round he was lying flat on the ground. 
He threw his cigarette into the fireplace. I think it is nearly time, he said. He waited until Manfred had gone, and going to the door, moved the bar and pulled it open wide. Stooping down, he saw that the opening of the door had been observed, for one of the men was moving across the lawn in the direction of the house. From his pocket he took a small electric lamp and sent three flickering beams into the darkness. To his surprise, only two men walked forward to the house. Evidently Cuccini was expected to deal with any resistance before the raid occurred. The house had been built in the fifteenth century, and the entrance hall was a broad, high barn of a place. Some Georgian architect, in the peculiar manner of his kind, had built the small minstrel gallery over the dining-room entrance and immediately facing the study. Leon had already explored the house and had found the tiny staircase that led to this architectural monstrosity. He had no sooner given the signal than he dived into the living-room, through the tall door, and was behind the thick curtains at the back of the narrow gallery when the first two men came in. He saw them go straight into the study and push open the door. At the same time a third man appeared under the porch, though he made no attempt to enter the hall. Presently one of those who had gone into the study came out and called Cuccini by name. When no answer came, he went grumbling back to his task. What that task was, Leon could guess, before the peculiarly acrid smell of hot steel was wafted to his sensitive nostrils. By crouching down he could see the legs of the men who were working at the safe. They had turned on all the lights and apparently expected no interruption. The man at the door was joined by another man. Where is Lou? In the stillness of the house the words, though spoken in a low tone, were audible. I don't know. Inside somewhere. We had to fix that dago. Leon grinned. This description of himself never failed to tickle him. One of the workers in the library came out at this point. Have you seen Cuccini? No, said the man at the door. Go in and find him. He ought to be here. Cuccini's absence evidently made him uneasy, for though he returned to the room, he was out again in a minute, asking if the messenger had come back. Then from the back of the passage came the searcher's voice. The kitchen's locked. The safe-cutter uttered an expression of amazement. Locked? What's the idea? He came to the foot of the stairs and bellowed up. Cuccini! Only the echo answered him. That's queer. He poked his head in the door of the study. Rush that job, Mike. There's some funny business here, and over his shoulder. Tell the boys to get ready to jump. The man went out into the night and was absent some minutes to return with an alarming piece of news. They've gone, boss. I can't see one of them. The boss cursed himself and himself went into the grounds on a visit of inspection. He came back in a hurry, ran into the study, and Leon heard his voice. Stand ready to clear. What about Cuccini? Cuccini will have to look after himself. Got it, Mike? The deep voice said something. There followed the sound of a crack, as though something of iron had broken. It was the psychological moment. Leon parted the curtains and dropped lightly to the floor. The man at the door turned in a flash at the sound. Put him up, he said sharply. Don't shoot. Leon's voice was almost conversational in its calmness. The house is surrounded by police. With an oath, the man darted out of the door, and at that instant came the sound of the first shot, 
followed by desultory firing from the direction of the road. The second guard had been the first to go. Leon ran to the door, slammed it tight and switched on the lights as the two men came from the study. Under the arm of one was a thick pad of square brown sheets. He dropped his load and put up his hands at the sight of the gun, but his companion was made of harder material, and with a yell he leapt at the man who stood between him and freedom. Leon twisted aside, advanced his shoulder to meet the furious drive of the man's fist, then dropping his pistol, he stooped swiftly and tackled him below the knees. The man swayed, sought to recover his balance, and fell with a crash on the stone floor. All the time his companion stood dazed and staring, his hands waving in the air. There was a knock at the outer door. Without turning his back upon his prisoners, Leon reached for the bar and pulled it up. Manfred came in. The gentleman who shouted Cuccini scared them. I think they got away. There were two cars parked on the road. His eyes fell upon the brown sheets scattered on the floor, and he nodded. I think you have all you want, Leon, he said. The detectives came crowding in at that moment and secured their prisoners whilst Leon Gonzalez and his friend went out onto the lawn to search for Gerther. The man lay as he had fallen, on his face, and as Leon flashed his lamp upon the figure, he saw that the snake had struck behind the ear. Gerther frowned Leon. He turned the figure on its back and gave a little gasp of surprise, for there looked up to the starry skies the heavy face of Pfeiffer. Pfeiffer? I could have sworn it was the other. There has been some double-crossing here. Let me think. He stood for fully a minute, his chin on his hand. I could have understood Gerther. He was becoming a nuisance and a danger to the old man. Pfeiffer, the more reliable of the two, hated him. My first theory was that Gerther had been put out by order of Aubergine. Suppose Gerther heard that order, or came to know of it, asked Manfred quietly. Leon snapped his fingers. That is it. We had a similar case a few years ago. You will remember, George. The old man gave the out order to Pfeiffer, and Gerther got his blow in first. Shrewd fellow. When they returned to the house, the three were seated in a row in Johnson Lee's library. Cuccini, of course, was an old acquaintance. Of the other two men, Leon recognized one, a notorious gunman whose photograph had embellished the pages of Hue and Cry for months. The third, and evidently the skilled workman of the party, for he it was whom they had addressed as Mike and who had burnt out the lock of Lee's safe, was identified by Meadows as Mike Selwyn, a skillful burglar and bank-smasher, who had, according to his statement, only arrived from the continent that afternoon in answer to a flattering invitation which promised considerable profit to himself. "'And why I left Milan,' he said bitterly, "'where the graft is easy and the money's good, I'd like you to tell me.' The prisoners were removed to the nearest secure lockup, and by the time Lee's servants returned from their dance, all evidence of an exciting hour had disappeared, except that the blackened and twisted door of the safe testified to the sinister character of the visitation. Meadows returned as they were gathering together the scattered sheets. There were hundreds of them, all written in braille characters, and Manfred's sensitive fingers were skimming their surface. Oh, yes, he said, in answer to a question that was put to him, I knew Lee was blind the day we searched Barberton's effects. That was my mystery. He laughed. Barberton expected a call from his old friend and had left a message for him on the mantelpiece. 
Do you remember that strip of paper? It ran, Dear Johnny, I will be back in an hour. These are letters. He indicated the papers. The folds tell me that, said Meadows. You may not get a conviction against Cuccini. The two burglars will come up before a judge, but to charge Cuccini means the whole story of the snake coming out, and that means a bigger kick than I am prepared to laugh away. I am inclined to let Cuccini go for the moment. Manfred nodded. He sat with the embossed sheets on his knee. Written from various places, he went on. He was curious to see him, his fingers running swiftly along the embossed lines, his eyes fixed on vacancy. So far I've learnt nothing, except that in his spare time Barberton amused himself by translating native fairy stories into English and putting them into Braille for use in the blind school. I knew, of course, that he did that, because I'd already interviewed his sister, who was the mistress of the girl's section. He had gone through half a dozen letters when he rose from the table and walked across to the safe. I have a notion that the thing we're seeking is not here, he said. It is hardly likely that he would allow a communication of that character to be jumbled up with the rest of the correspondence. The safe door was open and the steel drawer at the back had been pulled out. Evidently it was from this receptacle that the letters had been taken. Now the drawer was empty. Manfred took it out and measured the depth of it with his finger. "'Let me see,' said Gonzales suddenly. He groped along the floor of the safe, and presently he began to feel carefully along the sides. "'Nothing here,' he said. He drew out half a dozen account books and a bundle of documents, which at first glance Manfred had put aside as being personal to the owner of Rath Hall. These were lying on the floor amidst the mass of molten metal that had burnt deep holes in the carpet. Leon examined the books one by one, opening them and running his nail along the edge of the pages. The fourth, a weighty ledger, did not open so easily, did not indeed open at all. He carried it to the table and tried to pull back the cover. Now, how does this open? The ledger covers were of leather, to all appearance a very ordinary book, and Leon was anxious not to disturb so artistic a camouflage. Examining the edge carefully, he saw a place where the edges had been forced apart. Taking out a knife, he slipped a thin blade into the aperture. There was a click and the cover sprang up like the lid of a box. "'And this, I think, is what we are looking for,' said Gonzales. The interior of the book had been hollowed out. The edges being left were gummed tight, and the receptacle thus formed was packed close with brown papers, brown except for one which was written on a large sheet of foolscap, headed, Bureau of the Ministry of Colonies, Lisbon. Barberton had superimposed upon this long document his braille writing, and now one of the mysteries was cleared up. Lee said he had never received any important documents, said Manfred, and of course he hadn't, so far as he knew. To him this was merely a sheet of paper in which braille characters were inscribed. Read this, Leon. Leon scanned the letter. It was dated July 21, 1912, and bore in the lower left-hand corner the seal of the Portuguese colonial office. He read it through rapidly, and at the end looked up with a sigh of satisfaction. And this settles Aubergine and Company and robs them of a fortune, the extent of which I think we shall discover when we read Barberton's letter. He lit a cigarette and scanned the writing again, whilst Meadows, who did not understand Leon's passion for drama, waited with growing impatience. Illustrious Signor, began Leon reading. 
I have this day had the honor of placing before His Excellency the President and the Ministers of the Cabinet your letter dated May 15, 1912. By a letter dated January 8, 1911, the lands marked EX-275 on the survey map of the Biscara District were conceded to you, illustrious Signor, in order to further the cause of science, a cause which is very dear to the heart of His Excellency the President. Your further letter, in which you complain, illustrious Signor, that the incursion of prospectors upon your land is hampering your scientific work, and your request that an end may be put to these annoyances by the granting to you of an extension of the concession, so as to give you title to all minerals found in the aforesaid area, EX-275 on the survey map of Biscara, and thus making the intrusion of prospectors illegal, has been considered by the Council, and the extending concession is hereby granted on the following conditions. The term of the concession shall be for twelve years, as from the fourteenth day of June, 1912, and shall be renewable by you, your heirs or nominees, every twelfth year, on payment of a nominal sum of one thousand milrays. In the event of the concessionaire, his heirs or nominees, failing to apply for a renewal on the fourteenth day of June, 1924, the mineral rights of the said area, EX-275 on the survey map of Biscara, shall be open to claim in accordance with the laws of Angola. Leon sat back. Fourteenth of June, he said and looked up. Why, that is next week, five days. We've cut it rather fine, George. Barberton said there were six weeks, said Manfred. Obviously he made the mistake of timing the concession from July 21st, the date of the letter. He must have been the most honest man in the world. There was no other reason why he should have communicated with Miss Lester. He could have kept quiet and claimed the rights for himself. Go on, Leon. That is about all, said Leon, glancing at the tail of the letter. The rest is more or less flowery and complimentary, and has reference to the scientific work in which Professor Lester was engaged. Five days. Phew! he whistled. We may now find something in Barberton's long narrative to give us an idea of the value of this property. Manfred turned the numerous pages. Do any of you gentlemen write shorthand? Meadows went out into the hall and brought back an officer. Waiting until he had found pencil and paper, Leon began the extraordinary story of William Barberton. Most extraordinary because every word had been patiently and industriously punched in the Braille characters. End of chapter 17「Eighteen of the Three Just Men » by Edgar Wallace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Story of Mont Dior Dear friend Johnny, I have such a lot to tell you that I hardly know where to begin. I struck rich at last, and the dream I have often talked over with you has come true. First of all, let me tell you that I have come upon nearly fifty thousand pounds worth of wrought gold. We've been troubled round here with lions, one of which took away a carrier of mine, and at last I decided to go out and settle accounts with this fellow. I found him six miles from the camp and planted a couple of bullets into him without killing him, and decided to follow up the spoor. It was a mad thing to do, trailing a wounded lion in the jungle, and I didn't realize how mad until we got out of the bush into the hills and I had found Mrs. Lion waiting for me. She nearly got me, too more by accident than anything else, 
and managed to shoot her dead at the first shot, and got another pot at her husband as he was slinking into a cave which was near our tent. As I had gone so far, I thought I might as well go the whole hog, especially as I seen two lion cubs playing round the mouth of the cave, and bringing up my boys, who were scared to death, I crawled in, to find as I expected that the old lion was nearly gone, and a shot finished him. I had to kill the cubs, they were too young to be left alone, and too much of a nuisance to bring back to camp. This cave had been used as a lair for years, it was full of bones, human amongst them. But what struck me was the appearance of the roof, which I was almost certain had been cut out by hand. It was like a house, and there was a cut door in the rock at the back. I made a torch and went through on a tour of inspection, and you can imagine my surprise when I found myself in a little room with a line of stone niches or shelves. There were three lines of them on each side. Standing on these at intervals there were little statuettes. They were so covered with dust that I thought they were stone, until I tried to take one down to examine it, then I knew by its weight that it was gold, as they all were. I didn't want my boys to know about my find, because they are a treacherous lot, so I took the lightest after weighing them all with a spring balance and made a note where I'd taken it from. You might think that was enough of a find for one man in a lifetime, but my luck had set in. I sent the boys back and ordered them to break camp and join me on top of the Thaba. I called it the Thaba because it is rather like a hill I know in Basuto land and is one of two. The camp was moved up that night. It was a better pitch than any we had had. There was water, plenty of small game, and no mosquitoes. The worst part of it was the terrific thunderstorms which come up from nowhere, and until you've seen one in this ironstone country you don't know what a thunderstorm is like. The hill opposite was slightly smaller than the one I had taken as a camp, and between was a shallow valley, through which ran a small shallow river, rapids would be a better word. Early the next morning I was looking round through my glasses and saw what I thought was a house on the opposite hill. I asked my head man who lived there, and he told me that it was once the house of the Star Chief, and I remembered that somebody had told me, down in Mesomedes, that an astronomer had settled in this neighborhood and had been murdered by the natives. I thought I would go over and have a look at the place. The day being cloudy and not too hot, I took my gun and a couple of boys, and we crossed the river and began climbing the hill. The house was, of course, in ruins, it had only been a wattle hut at the best of times. Part of it was covered with vegetation, but out of curiosity I searched round, hoping to pick up a few things that might be useful to me, more particularly kettles, for my boys had burnt holes in every one I had. I found a kettle, and then, turning over a heap of rubbish which I think must have been his bed, I found a little rusty tin box and broke it open with my stick. There were a few letters which were so faded that I could only read a word here and there, and in a green oilskin, a long letter from the Portuguese government. It was at this point, either by coincidence or design, that the narrative continued on the actual paper to which he referred. I speak Portuguese and can read it as easily as English, and the only thing that worried me about it was that the concession gave Professor Lester all rights to my cave. My first idea was to burn it. But then I began to realize what a scoundrelly business that would be, and I took the letters out into the sun and tried to find if he had any relations, hoping that I'd be able to fix it up with them to take at any rate fifty percent of my find. There was only one letter that helped me. 
It was written in a child's hand and was evidently from his daughter. It had no address, but there was the name, Mirabel Lester. I put it in my pocket with the concession and went on searching, but found nothing more. I was going down the hill towards the valley when it struck me that perhaps this man had found gold, and the excuse for getting the concession was a bit of artfulness. I sent the boy back to the camp for a pick, a hammer and a spade, and when he returned I began to make a cutting in the side of the hill. There was nothing to guide me, no outcrop, such as you usually find near a true reef. But I hadn't been digging for an hour before I struck the richest bed of conglomerate I've ever seen. I was either dreaming, or my good angel had at last led me to the one place in the hill where gold could be found. I had previously sent the boys back to camp and told them to wait for me, because if I did strike metal, I did not want the fact advertised all over Angola, where they had been looking for gold for years. I understand it was not a reef in the ordinary sense of the word. It was all conglomerate, and the wider I made my cutting, the wider the bed appeared. I took the pick to another part of the hill and dug again, with the same result, conglomerate. It was as though nature had thrown up a huge golden hump on the earth. I covered both cuttings late that night and went back to camp. I was stalked by a leopard in the low bush but managed to get him. Early next morning I started off and tried another spot, and with the same result, first three feet of earth, then about six inches of shale, and then conglomerate. I tried to work through the bed, thinking that it might be just a skin, but I was saved much exertion by coming upon a deep rift in the hill about twenty feet wide at the top and tapering down to about fifty feet below the ground level. This gave me a section to work on, and as near as I can judge, the conglomerate bed is something over fifty feet thick, and I'm not so sure that it doesn't occur again after an interval of twenty feet or more, for I dug more shale and had a showing of conglomerate at the very bottom of the ravine. What does this mean, Johnny? It means that we have found a hill of gold, not solid gold as in the story books, but gold that pays ounces and probably pounds to the ton. How the prospectors have missed it all these years I can't understand, unless it is that they've made their cuttings on the north side of the hill, where they have found nothing but slate and sandstone. The little river in the valley must be feet deep in alluvial, for I panned the bed and got eight ounces of pure gold in an hour, and that was by rough and ready methods. I had to be careful not to make the boys too curious, and I am breaking camp tomorrow, and I want you to cable to send me five hundred pounds to Masomides. The statuette I'm bringing home is worth all that. I would bring more, only I can't trust these Angola boys. A lot of them are mission boys and can read Portuguese, and they're too friendly with a half-breed called Via, who was an agent of Aubergine and Smith's the traders, and I know these people to be the most unscrupulous scoundrels on the coast. I shall be at Mosambides about three weeks after you get this letter, but I don't want to get back to the coast in a hurry. Otherwise, people are going to suspect I have made a strike. Leon put the letter down. There is the story in a nutshell, gentlemen, he said. I don't for one moment believe that Mr. Barberton showed via the letter. It is more likely that one of the educated natives he speaks about saw it and reported it to Aubergine's agent. Portuguese is the lingua franca of that part of the coast. Barberton was killed to prevent his meeting the girl and telling her of his find, incidentally of warning her to apply for a renewal of the concession. It wasn't even necessary that they should search his belongings to recover the letter, 
because once they knew of its existence and the date which Barberton had apparently confounded with the date the letter was written, their work was simply to present an application to the colonial office at Lisbon. It was quite different after Barberton was killed, when they learnt or guessed that the letter was in Mr. Lee's possession. Meadows agreed. That was the idea behind Aubergine's engagement of Mirabel Lester? Exactly. It was also behind the attack upon Heavy Tree Farm. To secure this property they must get her away and keep her hidden, either until it is too late for her to apply for a renewal, or until she has been bullied or forced into appointing a nominee. Or married, said Leon briskly. Did that idea occur to you? Our tailor-made friend, Monty Newton, may have had matrimonial intentions. It would have been quite a good stroke of business to secure a wife and a large and auriferous hill at the same time. This, I think, puts a period to the ambitions of Herr Dr. Aubergine. He got up from the table and handed the papers to the custody of the detective, and turned with a quizzical smile to his friend. George, do you look forward with any pleasure to a two hundred and fifty miles drive? Are you the chauffeur? asked George. I am the chauffeur, said Leon cheerfully. I have driven a car for many years, and I have not been killed yet. It is unlikely that I shall risk my precious life and yours tonight. Come with me, and I promise never to hit her above sixty except on the real speedways. Manfred nodded. We will stop at Oxley and try to get a phone call through to Gloucester, said Leon. This line is, of course, out of order. They would do nothing so stupid as to neglect the elementary precaution of disconnecting Rath Hall. At Oxley the big spans pulled up before the dark and silent exterior of an inn, and Leon, getting down, brought the half-clad landlord to the door and explained his mission, and also learned that two big cars had passed through half an hour before, going in the direction of London. That was the gang. I wonder how they'll explain to their paymaster their second failure. His first call was to the house in Curzon Street, but there was no reply. Ring them again, said Leon. You left Poichart there? Manfred nodded. They waited for five minutes. Still there was no reply. How queer, said Manfred. It isn't like Poichart to leave the house. Get Gloucester. At this hour of the night the lines are comparatively clear, and in a very short time he heard the Gloucester operator's voice, and in a few seconds later the click that told them they were connected with Heavy Tree Farm. Here there was some delay before the call was answered. It was not Mirabel Lester nor her aunt who spoke, nor did he recognize the voice of Digby, who had recovered sufficiently to return to duty. "'Who is that?' asked the voice sharply. "'Is that you, Sergeant?' "'No, it is Mr. Meadows,' said Leon mendaciously. "'The Scotland Yard, gentlemen?' It was an eager inquiry. "'I am Constable Kirk of the Gloucester Police. My sergeant's been trying to get in touch with you, sir.' "'What is the matter?' asked Leon, a cold feeling at his heart. "'I don't know, sir.' About half an hour ago I was riding past here, I'm one of the mounted men, and I saw the door wide open and all the lights on, and when I came in there was nobody up. I woke Miss Goddard and Mr. Digby, but the young lady was not in the house. Lights everywhere? asked Leon quickly. Yes, sir, in the parlor at any rate. No sign of a struggle? No, sir, but a car passed me three miles from the house and it was going at a tremendous rate. I think she may have been in that. Mr. Digby and Miss Goddard have just gone into Gloucester. All right, officer. I am sending Mr. Gonzales down to see you, said Leon, and hung up the receiver. What is it? asked George Manfred, 
I knew that something was wrong by his friend's face. They've got Mirabeau Lester after all, said Leon. I'm afraid I shall have to break my promise to you, George. That machine of mine is going to travel before daybreak. End of chapter 18 Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.